So one aspect of the practice that it's good to focus on and get some focus on is the devotional side of devotional meaning of devotion what devotion is it's one of those pieces that uh, or words that can we find doesn't maybe don't doesn't fit or we don't really resonate with it very well you know seems kind of blind or just the emotional or a bit simplistic a lot of time in particularly in this uh, contemplative uh, Theravada tradition you're dealing with a lot of emphasis on rational structures things we can definitely define or there's quite a lot of skillful terms used you know you can figure it you can get a convincing map of sila samadhi panya four jhanas eightfold path five precepts eight precepts itaka vichara you know lots and lots of pali words and you kind of put them together we've got a kind of definitely a, a that which you can do doesn't rely upon anything outside your own experience, doesn't depend upon some supernatural power. Um, you can do it, and uh, it's kind of workable. And, you know, through that you can realize release, liberation, which is all true. Except that often uh, our, uh, the what the terms are referring to there, you can, ration, you can definitely rationally describe them, aren't necessarily the words are rational, but what they're referring to are not rational experiences. <laughs> so we can use a word like rapture or piti, and we can use that word. Definitely that's a, something we can have a term for, we can think about, we can discuss, we can talk about. The experience itself is not, not a rational one. It's, a, it's a, um, an energetic one. It's where the, uh, which we experience, people experience when there's a sense of something that's uh, emotionally or psychologically effective. So we feel interested, aroused, excited, uh, sense of joy. And it's such that there's a bodily sense that goes along with it, some kind of thrill. And that can be, people get it around you know, music or beauty. But then in, in meditation, it's called an unworldly rapture, which is dependent purely upon non-involvement. There's a sense of stepping back from sensory involvement and skillful use of the mind. So you start to bring your mind into bodily energy. And the way that you do that is you're breathing in and out so that the very sense of the energy of the mind, which does all the work, you know, the probing, taps into this 
steady rhythmic experience of breathing in and out. And if it stays there, established, it doesn't get thrown around by thoughts and moods and stuff like that, then you get this definitely this um, strong feeling or strong experience. Hmm. So with that, we we find that instead of uh, the point of rapture or pity and ease, sukha, as being necessary for awakening, they are enlightenment factors. They're necessary for absorption and for awakening. Is that they definitely take you out of your head, but in in a very clear way, not in a kind of stupefied or uh, intoxicated way, very clearly see you're opening into a world that's much bigger than just your cognitive maps. And you, of course, you can put those terms on a cognitive map, but what you're opening into is something that's a bit bigger. And the feeling is one where you're not you're not actually so much doing the meditation is you are held within it. So it leads to this quality called ekagata, one pointedness, where you're actually like you're held. It's like something is holding you there, and it's absorption. So then, in a way, what one is doing is kind of surrendering or releasing the doing mind, the thinking, the planning, the how long, the figuring it out. You're, you're beginning to to acknowledge that, but also that say there's something bigger than that, or there's another realm beyond that, where this uh, the normal configuration of ourself, which is the Thinking, planning, directing, agent is quietened and there's a bigger something else. And that in a way is a kind of what we call, could conventionally call a religious experience. <clears throat> the experience of what in other uh, religious would call experience the divine, you know. Some kind of, something that's beyond your, your cognitive sense. Yeah. But in Buddhism, it's not divine. It's just another realm of the mind, another realm of our experience that people don't necessarily go into very often. So they call it, think it's divine. So this we get some perspective on our thinking, planning, cognitive mind. Uh, It was very important. This is the one which keeps defining our world and our reality. And in the first level of awakening, or stream entra, is someone who really understands this thinking, systemizing um, doctrines, systems, customs, personal mind as what it is. And it's got beyond that. It's no longer taking a stand upon that. We've got that. We can do that. We know that level of experience. We're no longer, you know, Using this as our ground, we see. Yeah, there's there's a, some there's a release from that. There's a beyond that, and this is the first level of awakening. Yeah. <clears throat> Often, you know. So, just to kind of remember that, because um, the Buddha did talk about things like a stream entry and awakening and refuges, to, to, to just give people a sense, if you haven't experienced this yourself, you know, then just at least, you know, let it float there 
Have some faith, have some confidence, have some sense of giving it the benefit of the doubt. You don't know that, but this is definitely, Buddha maps it out. So, we at least bear that in mind, there's a beyond this. So we're not continually trying to make this, this particular reality or that our, our thinking minds construct as something that's so, got to be so right or so important or so necessary or held or controlled or identified with. It's, it's, yeah, it's this. You want, to make, you want to be able to make your way through it, but don't build a house on this, you know. So this sense of the, what are called the two main agents, you might say, of the seeker. It's like one's a push and one's a pull. And the push from behind is the realization of the unsatisfactoriness, the downright painfulness of, of uh, our limited, you know, what seems to be our human condition. Birth, aging, sickness, death... And even more subtle but more profound than that, the clinging to these five aggregates, clinging to the way our minds work, clinging to the way we construct things. So when you begin to sense how you, people who are not sick, not dying, not necessarily in pain, can still feel utterly confused and wretched and frustrated and pointless and wondering what the hell they're going to do because of what their minds create. And and all our minds can create, and that we that we try and still try to make it work, you know. And the point is that, well, you know, you've been doing this for twenty years or so. It doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Otherwise, you've got it working by now. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with you. It's just the, you know, the system, that system doesn't work. For if you want looking for peace or clarity or release, that isn't going to go it. And after a while, you, you know, it's not because you're not trying. It's just it doesn't do it. And you've got to find what's the way beyond that. And then the other agent, you might they say the pull agent, is called pasada, which means you have a sense of faith or trust in there is an awakening. You know, there, is a, there is a beyond this. There are beings who have done that, who, who have, have found that way and have taught that way. And this is one of them. You know, the Buddha has taught his way in a pretty full-on 45 years or so of teaching, a lot of, lot of structures, a lot of teachings. You know. So it's not just the kind of one-off chance. There's a, there's a very well-documented way of doing that. So we have this, it's a reasonable act of faith, you might say. And you have the faith and you say, well, you can check this out. And the bits you can do like, you know, maybe the generosity or non-violence or telling the truth or not drinking. Well, you can do those and you see, well, actually, you know, this is there. And you see these have beneficial effects. And the Buddha teaches those. Maybe these other things I haven't done yet, I haven't got sorted out, maybe they come from the same person, maybe they also have good effects. It's a reasonable act of faith. What's really helpful in all that as we practice 
is this sense of what I'm calling devotion. Um, but it, devotion really means two particular things. Yeah. And perhaps we try to make it that, that our whole life is held in a certain devotional sense. And devotion, first of all, means you vote. You vote, you choose. You say, I do this. I don't just kind of fumble along and well, whatever, you know. You definitely commit. You definitely do something. And for a start, you know, you definitely commit to the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts, whatever your precept um, standard is. You definitely commit to that. And you commit to things you don't do. You say, I'm not going to do this. And then you get the sense of what that voting, that committing is about. You say, well, I also commit to regular meditation practice. I also commit to um, service. I commit, you know, I don't just, it's not just the kind of, you know, going along with, but a big yes to certain things. Hmm. And that, that itself has got a firming effect in the mind. So if we see our minds are getting caught up with, you know, aversion or worry or doubt, then you just, you realize, well, wait a minute, I'm not, not giving more energy to this. There's a big no there as well. It's called the, the right efforts. Definitely things you've committed to saying no to. If they come up, they come up, but you're not going to act upon them. And then you start to vote the other way. You don't vote for this party, you vote for that party. So it's affirming up. And, you know, with that you begin to recognize the need for that firming up, and the no's and the yes's, and that gives you two more features. One is sense restraint. That's the no. That's how you realize you've got to lessen the amount of possibilities there are, because if you don't, you can't really properly steward and handle because you've got too much stuff on. So restraint, lessening, quietening, renunciation, these are the, you know, that's one aspect of it. That's the no, things we hold back on. And then things we say yes to, again, it's towards um, deepening mindfulness. Mindfulness, stillness, one-pointedness, you know. So you get these, you build up that. The whole thing is held carefully with a sense of, you know, what's happening now? Are you having some say over? That's part of what devotion is. You, you commit. And it, it allows you to make choices and feel the quality of making choices. And the other aspect of devotion is it's, um, it listens a lot. You know, when you're devoted to bark or something, you really take it in. If you're devoted to, you know, cookery or something, you really taste the food. You really take it in. You sample it fully. So, again, you know, these are things that can... Habit tends to wear these down. We just go along. Maybe we meditate. We just sort of sit there. No, another one. Okay. 
there isn't necessarily a full taking in. We don't fully check out what's happening, fully appreciate it. And it goes a little bit grey. And actually this aspect is very, these, both these two aspects are very important. And these are actually related to or extensions of the two fundamental um, agents of meditation, vitaka, vichara. Taka, vitaka means you bring something to mind. You definitely pick up something. You pick up breathing. Hey, am I breathing? Where's my body? And you pick it up conceptually. You know, just by using a word like breathing, body, breathing in, breathing out, you definitely pick up something, bringing it to mind. And you keep bringing it to mind. And that's our vote, you might say. And the vichara is the other aspect, which is our ability to sample, evaluate, taste. Is this right? Just like you're tasting soup. Is it salty? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it fresh? Is it, what is it? Hmm? So these two qualities are practical devotion, you might say, kind of non-theistic devotion, <laughs> non-religious devotion, just you know, devotion on, on, a, on, a, on a very um, rational, reasonable experience, reasonable level. And that's what we want to have sustaining those two qualities as much as we can in everything we do. So you're living life in a devotional way. Like you're cooking, you're cooking. You want to know how to do that, how it's going to work best, best results, what makes things work sweetest, what brings harmony in the kitchen, you know, how to put things away how to prepare the food pleasantly, how to offer it in a sense of this is really being offered. So all, all these qualities come into, into play in when we do it in the cooking. It can be a devotional practice. If it's a devotional practice, it takes all the tedium out of it, all the uh, chore out of it, all the, you know, I could be doing something else because then this becomes a Dharma practice whereby you, you check whether your mind states are skillful or unskillful in what you're doing, things you don't need to talk about, no need to do, you don't do them. Things you do need to do, you put attention into it, keep it clean. You know what? It, and it's pretty, pretty practical stuff. How to do things well. So then you notice you get good results from that. So that's again part of that vichara process so just taking in the results like in our kitchen we have a Buddha image in the kitchen sitting up above the sink it's there as a, rec- as a reminder hey this is also Dharma practice it's not just you know cooking the food for the guys who are doing the practice this is the practice you know you can have skillful mind states in the, in the kitchen or skillful mindsets in the Dhamma hall, it's the same, essentially it's the same practice, the same systems are getting there, vitaka, vichara, bringing something to mind, checking it out, you know, and looking at things like, you know, working together, 
um, working according to time, looking at resources, recognizing the food has been offered by generous people, so it's not to be abused, to be used carefully for the welfare of people who are going to eat it. You know? So, and these are inner themes. And one of the results of, of practicing like that is that you, you get certain um, merit. Merit is one way of looking at it. It's, not, it's one, of, one of the most unfortunate terms in Buddhism. <laughs> they almost immediately cringe at the idea because it's the, you know, it's the paper indulgence, it's the cash register in the sky, you know, you put your money in the box and boom, you know, you've got two, done your three Hail Marys and you're up there. And people really don't like it at all. So um, I thought I'd better talk about it. <laughs> Punya means uh, same as bounty or blessing. What it refers to, at least a skillful way of using it, is recognizing that you get good results from doing good things. And you can, you can almost log them. That is, they become established in your, somewhere in your mind. You know what it's like to have done good. You know what it's like to have spoken truth. You know what it felt like. Because you remembered it. You logged it. You recognized it. So that's what it means, the accumulating merit. It means those pieces of good that you've done have been encapsulated and sort of stored. So you, you can go there again. A lot of the time we encapsulate a lot of just crud, really, a lot of rubbish, you know, or just flotsam and jetsam, odd stuff. Gets there, so you, you go somewhere and you remember what it was like with my mates five years ago, you know, but it was fun you know we we have these images that we retain in our minds nostalgia fun warmth bitterness Um, so we do that anyway but in this practice you're starting to you know log and record places where you were skillful And you get the feeling for what it felt like at the time. This is why when we, we practice in this devotional way, it's like you're really attentive to, now that worked. What did it feel like when you're just really true, really clear, and you weren't flustered and you weren't fudging it and you weren't panicking and you weren't wishing you were somewhere else and you weren't resisting, you were just really with what you were doing. Ah, now get that one, photograph that, what that felt like. And then... You can come back to that. Photograph what it's like when your mind was still. Photograph what it was like when your mind was loving. Photograph what it was like when you had a sense of self-respect and having done good, you know, and you felt good with yourself. Just remember it. Isn't somebody else storing it up and adding it up at the end of the day? That's not what it's about. It's about definitely making these benchmarks in your conscious process so that when you get swept along by this tide of boredom or apathy or ill will or negativity or lack of self-respect, you can say, hey, no, wait a minute, I remember what it's like. I know what I've been like when I was clear. I've been there. I know it felt like this. It was this. 
And you can go there and you can come out of this, these horrible whirlpools you get stuck in. So, act of recollection is perhaps every day, at least, remembering, you know, one's field of merit. That's the term. It's not a comfortable term. It's not an easy term, but that's what it means. It refers to a whole domain, yeah, a field that you can live within. You know, the good friends I have. It can be things like that. Skillful connections I have. The precepts I've kept. The sense of honour. The feeling of that I have no regret. Um, The kindness that's been done to me today. Mm -hmm. So these are all, you build these up. So that we've got some sense of a, like a, relative ground I think one of the things that can happen when particularly when you know over centuries religion sort of gets debunked because it gets stuck in its outward forms and its territories and its cultures so eventually people think what's all this stuff about you know, begetting and smiting and being damned. Oh, enough of this, I'm out of here. You know? Or that we've got to believe in something we don't know or we've got to follow particular rituals or something like that. It's just meaningless. And when, when a religion becomes kind of ossified in its own, stuck in its own cultural trappings, in its own history, believing in itself, so there's a huge can be a loss of faith. And then when you come to a multicultural world, you say, oh, well, okay, you know, it's all relative. Islam is this, and Sufis are that, and Hindus are this, and Buddhists are that. And they have these beliefs, they have that beliefs, yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of get this sense of everything is just relative, just the relative, relative viewpoints. And it's all you know, can seen as cultural. You know, Buddhists pray to Buddha, you know, Mohammedans, Islamists pray to Allah, same thing, you know, just different names, same thing. So we have this kind of relative viewpoint, it's called flatland, everything's more or less the same, and we got it all, we can figure it all out. There's nothing ultimate about it, it's just all relative positions and views. It's the end of the sacred. Sacred is just superstition. Or pre-rational. And then, more as anything, you know, if you transfer that into vipassana, think, you say, well, you know, if it's good thought, it rises and passes. If it's bad thought, it rises and passes. So there's not much good between good and bad, really, is there? They both arise and pass. So, just stuff. Um, you know? <laughs> and you could, you know, you could be keep the precepts and be a good person, that would be just another self-view, or you could not keep the precepts and be a bad person, it's just not self, it's not self either, so it's the same, good and bad are the same. It's just relative viewpoints. 
So on a kind of, you know, that's where thinking minds can operate. With penetration, getting beyond the thinking, organizing, making mind, into what we call what we experience as sacred, which is something much bigger, vaster, where my thinking mind stops, goes quiet, where I'm not organizing the world. There is that. There is the cessation, the relinquishment experiences that can happen. And for that, there definitely is a path through the relative, and it means you've got to line up the good. You know, it may only be relative, but it's certain relativities go one way, <laughs> and other relativities go another way. <laughs> They're only relative, but it's like some ladders, you know go somewhere and some go another way, some roads go but there isn't such a thing as a real meaning for good and bad. Yeah. And but you want to know it for yourself, not just believe it, not just assume it, but find it out. Because uh, this is what Vitaka Vichara, pointing the mind and feeling it and sampling it tells you, hey this stuff when I do this, focus on that, what's the result? Dark, confused no ground, no firmness, agitated. What's the result? Is it, you want that? Or another result is it's clearer, it's calmer, it's steadier. Something you says, yeah, I want that. They're both relative, but one's something that we feel we can more conscious, be more conscious of, more clear about. And through that process, you, know, you build up, you build up relativities. This is really what this field is about. Lots and lots of relative but useful um, experiences. And in uh, Buddha's teaching, the ultimate is based upon the relative. It's not separate from it. You have to go along the relative path of good, path of Kind, path of stillness is better than agitation. Um, depth has more value to it than surface. It's only a relative position, but it has more um, potential in it. So we start to log those. What was it like, you know, when one's mind was still? Or there was some stillness there. And as you, as you remember that, you know, you start to, what were the factors that brought that around? How did that arise? You know, maybe you don't know, but at least you, you kind of tune into that. Yeah. Perhaps was, you weren't pushing, you weren't pulling back, you were, say, in your body, uh, there was a feeling of general gentleness, or there was an absence of harshness, there was an absence of um, worry. You know, so you start to add up the, the you know 
check it out. And you, but you always remember that there was that, there is that, whenever those experiences happen. <coughs> this is how you map your path. So something like, you know, um, giving precepts. Or in a monastery, you know, keeping things like getting up in the morning for morning puja, not eating in the afternoon, things that are not ethically necessary. Think, well, you know, getting up at four, you know, getting up at seven is just the same as getting up at four, getting up at eight is just the same as getting up at four, eating at one is the same as eating at eleven, you know, it's just food, it's just clock time, it doesn't really matter, does it? True, you know, it cannot really matter. And what's it like when it doesn't matter? What's the result of that? Any any strengths build up through that? Any advantages in that? Probably just less, it's probably easier. But, you know, because we don't have anything we've got to kind of really focus on and, and you know, say resist and be mindful and hold and bear in mind. So in a way it's easier, but then results? Any still, any quiet, any stillness, any firmness? Don't think so. But then when you hold these things, not because a matter of obedience, not because it's a big deal, but just because it's a respect and devotion to a particular form. And whatever form you use, you want to be devoted to it. I mean, if you want to, say, get up at nine o'clock in the morning and go to bed at three, that's fine, you know. But then that's your form and you devote to that. But here we're doing it, we're doing it this way. As long as you do it with that sense of clarity and looking into results, and uh, then you decide which form you're going to use. What, the one that works for you. There's this particular form here. Otherwise, it kind of, it's not the form, but the very attitude towards it and the using it for firming up and putting aside wavering, doubt, carelessness, negligence, casualness, you know, things which are kind of relatively harmless Seemingly, they're not like violence or hatred, but it's it's the seemingly harmless stuff you've got to be really careful about because that's the stuff that starts to creep in and gradually eat away the guts, the firmness of your practice. You know, it's like if somebody, you know, comes in and throws mud on the walls, you really notice that. But what happens, what's more likely, is just fine dust accumulates. Nothing's a big problem, but just the fine dust of, well, I'm okay, it doesn't really matter, well, tomorrow I'll do it. And that's that's the stuff that sticks. So, you don't notice it, because it doesn't come in with a big bang. It doesn't come in as a big 
mess. He comes in as just this kind of, well, I'm just a reasonable person, feel like this, don't feel like that. That's the stuff you've got to be careful with. Because it does, it's so, it's so insidious. You know, let's not make a problem out of a form, it's going to be more relaxed. And then it just starts to infiltrate. But it's not, you know, it's just get the right sense of it. It's not tyranny or obedience or force, but a sense of devotion. This is what I do. There's a word that was the Buddha sometimes used, I don't know exact parley for it, but one of the phrases that comes to mind is, uh, contemplative is devoted to wakefulness. Interesting. He doesn't force himself to stay awake. He's devoted to wakefulness. There's a sense of the beauty of it, the dignity of it, the worthiness of it, the loveliness of that being clear and awake and not just kind of sliding around fuzzy. This is why, you know, why we make a thing out of getting up in the morning. And how that can tip into, well, you, you've got to do it because you're here. And then it, it loses it. It's no longer beautiful. It's just, you know, obedient. <laughs> and then when you get obedient, eventually you want to be disobedient because nobody likes being obedient, I shouldn't think. <laughs> Obedience is not a spiritual virtue, but, but devotion is. So you'll be careful with these forms. They don't just become conformist forms that you do sort of reluctantly, but you've got to do that. That's the thing. You want to make them heartful. Then they work. They really work. Because when they're heartful, they register in your heart. As obedience doesn't. just registers as a feeling of got to. It flattens. It cuts off. You do it with the sense of, this is my honour, this, this is what I do, this is where I shape, form myself in this particular form. It registers, and then you can remember, you can recollect. That was the place when I really opened up. That was the place, that was the time, I know what it's like to really open up. I, want, I, want, I know, what it, know what it feels like to really just put myself on the line and commit, do that. I know what that feels like you know, for that, that moment. There's a sense of one's bigger, one's grander than one's rational, organizing, comfort-seeking, okay, I'm okay mind. So there's a purpose to it. It doesn't have a purpose, there's no point. So we recollect, you know, and sometimes it's good when you're busy day, all the things you can think about, plan you've got to do or whatever, just to say just that is not the thing. Just to spend some time recollecting, you know, one's goodness, one's virtue. So easy to get all the urgencies or the pressures and the problems of the world and just get fuddled by it all. Because actually that, as far as I can see, it doesn't end. There isn't an end to that. 
Now, we're not ignoring it, but you see, first of all, you've got to find a place where you are in your strength. Then you can approach it. Your strength starts with your sense of, you know, I'm, I'm bigger than this. There's compassion, there's virtue, there's clarity. And you, and you recollect, recollect what those are for you, what they feel like, not just as ideas. So the more often we deliberately visit those places, deliberately enact those virtues, the more they get registered and printed on our minds. Then you come back to that. Yeah. And you have that sense of self-respect. It's the same with samadhi. You know? Recollecting that you, know, you start to see where does the mind get a little bit more still? Hmm? It's not going to suddenly go well, probably, I shouldn't think so, suddenly go, find yourself helplessly swept into absorption. <laughs> there I go again, you know, I was just trying to go for dinner and boom, this jhana descended on me. I've got to watch out for that. No, it doesn't. You kind of, you've got to build it up slowly, you know, places where you can see there was less fluster, less, less agitation, less proliferation. How you trim that proliferation the mind was going to run off and create another store, and you caught it. I said, no, don't, bother, don't go there. You know, you build, you build it up. And so you see the mind is a little bit more still. And then when it's a little more still, you can look more clearly. At, well, exactly what was the stilling quality? You know, and you look into that. And what did it feel like? And so that's how you start to hope. And the more you focus on that, the bigger that quality gets. It's very important for absorption because with this we start to see first of all the, you know the the um, you know the thinking mind you train you pull that in you rein that in the outgoing mind you start to rein pull that in and even the qualities of of um, you know spiritual happiness. Just, just cooling that, steadying that, l- looking for the place where there's some steadying, some some resting. So stillness may be something like rest, um, not having to go there, not having to bother. You know, sort of sense of um, it's not just rigidity; it's a feeling of your something is relaxed, rested, still enough. Mm-hmm. And the one-pointedness comes from one-pointedness of intention. I'm looking for, I'm interested in that. You know, I revere that sense of deep, steady, restful firmness. I'm looking for that. You know, that's your, that's your, your intention. Then you look for where, where that quality is occurring in your meditation. And you go there. And at times when your mind is really scattered, you think, oh, I can't meditate, I really don't know how to do this anymore. This isn't the place, this isn't the right, I'm not well, too many things to do. Just just wait a minute, stop, remember, recollect. You know, you've been at places of calm. What did it feel like? So then you come back to that and you can, you know, that's that's the benefit of long-term practice. You don't just have to you know, keep starting again all the time. From nowhere. You built something up. Same with release. Mm-hmm. 
What was it like when we just something we just let go of something? It was a grudge, maybe, or a craving, or an addiction. Just something is enough. Let it go. What did that feel like? So there can be a real happiness uh, in in remembering that, that. And sometimes I find I'm feeling a bit, you know, losing perspective. I start thinking, oh, I start to give things away. That helps. Always helps when I start giving things away, <laughs> getting rid of stuff. And suddenly you feel, oh yeah, a lovely feeling of just enough of that. Put that away, finish, stop, let go. You know, it brings me back to that, uh, the element of release, of freeing. So it's not because I'm particularly, you know, ascetic or, but just uh, looking for having less. But there's a certain, it reminds me and it, it, have that particular quality in myself that can just, you know, put everything away, put things away, and I've done it. Mm. If a serious practice, you know, in some ways you have to have found some place in yourself and you've given your life away. You said, hey, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? You know? If you've done that a few times, then you've got a real fearless place you can go to. So, you know, I've been I've been there where there was none of that, none of that, none of that, and I'm okay. I've been there where it, you know there was nothing there for me, and I gave up. Mm-hmm. And these become like gems, treasures. Strange to think of, you know, giving up as a treasure. But that's the whole point of it, you know. The whole uh, paradox, you might say, is that from this side of it, it looks like you're having less. But from the other side of it, you've just got in touch with your freedom capacity. And then the freedom capacity, this is the big one. The holding on capacity is pretty small when you think of it. You know, in fact, there's not much we can hold on at all. <laughs> you, know? I mean, you get to hold things for a little while, but everything goes, doesn't it? Yeah. So then the, the freedom capacity, the release capacity, that domain is, is the big one. So the more we can remember that, trust that, have a sense of faith and, and, and work it, you know, so we go back to that giving up, putting things away, letting go of things. The more we do that and realize, yeah, I'm doing that because I want to and it it puts me in touch with my vastness, with my freedom, my fearlessness. These are then, you know, these big words, but they are are practical things that we can do. People do them. People find themselves suddenly becoming grand, magnificent, around small pieces, magnificently forgiving, magnificently, you know, relinquishing.
These human things. This is the human potential. But then you know what it's like, you know, this mind thing. It gets so embedded in one's little soap opera with its trivial stuff and its self-pity and its righteousness and its, you know, its, you know, its furnishings. Not even very good furnishings sometimes. You know, tatty old second-hand furnishings we lift in our heads. <laughs> Same old stuff. You know, and because it's sort of easy, and you can slump down in it. <laughs> and there's this kind of vastness that's there, you know, that we could step into. Don't, don't, it's not some, you know, it's not something only enlightened beings get, or the end, it's, that, People at the end of the path get, now you can do that. You know? Do something vast today. <laughs> you know? And it's just the phrase, it means that point you step, step outside of your little kind of world thing, just do something like see the night, see the vastness and remember that. Mm-hmm. And do something, you know, that's about relinquishment, letting go. It could be a very mundane, personal piece. You know, at times I've just made it like a resolution of a two weeks or a month or so, it's every day, something that I rather like, got used to, I just put it, give it away. Maybe it's a book, something, you know, item of clothing, bag of tea, doesn't really matter, small thing, just give it away. Because there's a sense I can do that. It's not going to hold me. It can be material things, it can be time things, it can be, you know, just to, just to keep that, that element, that, that muscle working so he doesn't wither. You know, I can get up earlier or I can practice later. And these are, and just, these are naturally things where there's, there's resistance, there's why bother, it doesn't really matter, what am I trying to prove, it's not a big, you know, and these, that kind of voice in your mind, well, where's that one going? Where does that one go? Does it go anywhere good, useful, does it take you to something grand, or just something that's kind of okay? And isn't life going to be much more than just being okay and getting by? Could it be marvellous? It can. But it's up to us to to remember our potential, to remember those times, those occasions, and to not lose touch with it. So it's a whole self-respect that's not about self. It's about the human potential. We respect it in ourselves, we respect it in others. And this is the 
you know, in a way, a, a monastery or any spiritual place is a place where we're looking to recognize that in each other and to live that out. And it's not just convenient. Mm-hmm. And with that, then all the sort of bits and pieces that people have to go through, their dull stuff, their murky stuff, their irritable stuff, you can, you can, you, you know, you can be bigger than that. Because you say, well, he's basically the, the person, the man, the woman, she's made a commitment, she does that, you know. You see that, you can see their personal stuff in perspective of their spiritual aspirations. And this is uh, how, how communities can work, where with all our different personalities and weird bits and pieces and whatever, we still find there's a harmony on the spiritual plane because we respect that in ourselves and respect it in others. And it allows us to, to tolerate, to be mindful of, to inquire into all these karma that we have to work with. So, for this, for your reflection. <clears throat>